One of the many reasons I haven't lost my passion for A Song of Ice and Fire after so long in the fandom and after so long making podcasts and videos is, well, let me relay a little story that happened while making the Dreams of Dreamers episode that we're here to discuss. I was looking for a quote, as I often do, and specifically looking for an intro quote. And that's one of the most important quotes of the episode, in my opinion. We, it gets the whole thing started. And we want something, when we're looking for a quote, we want something that covers the topic as well as possible in a concise manner, as well as, you know, getting us all excited for the topic we're about to discuss. And when in researching for this Dreams and Dreamers episode, I was blown away by how perfect the quote I found was. The brand quote that we started the last episode with just fits so amazingly well. And this has happened so many times in this episode creation process, and you all may not have realized. You all love the material, of course, but unless you dig through it and do all this research stuff like we do, you may not notice these things, and we can't always relay them to you in our scripts and our episodes. So I wanted to share that with you, because I think it's really great. It's yet another thing to really love about A Song of Ice and Fire is just you go looking for something and you find more than you were expecting. Yeah, so... I think that's great. It's one of the wonderful things about the series. It's one of the great things about the fandom. So here we are today, back with another episode of History of Westeros podcast. First episode of 2017. And because it's the first episode of 2017, I'm going to do a little something that we haven't done before, which is a little 2016 year in review. Before we get started with the episode, got a few details there. So let's do that. Last year, we did 26 episodes on HBO's Game of Thrones. Up from 23 the year before, the average episode was also a bit longer. As far as the Song of Ice and Fire coverage, we went from 11 episodes in 2015 to 12 in 2016, with the average episode being quite a bit longer. We had four hours more total of Song of Ice and Fire coverage in 2016 as compared to 2015, which is basically two additional long episodes. Our average episode was a little bit longer, which is kind of ironic because I was trying to get our episodes a little shorter and split them up more, and I really kind of <laughs> didn't really succeed in that. So we'll see how 2017 goes in that regard. But regardless of that, we aim to increase that output even more thanks to your support on social media, Patreon, through our website and all the different uh, formats there. So a couple other fun things from last year. We debuted our new intro, video intro, our, with our Ashai episode, thanks to Michael Klarfeld of Claradox.de again for the wonderful video intro. Around... 418, which was the Aziz first Aziz versus chapter episode. We debuted our new camera, which has increased our quality quite a bit. And Shea, who is on the other side of the camera today, has gotten better every single time at not just recording, but at post-production. And that is a bigger reason for our improved quality than the camera itself. So that's great. We are, of course, continuing with our Blackfire Rebellion series. That will be the next episode. It's very close. We're having Stephen Atwell as a guest again, as he has been for much of the series. And that's going to be on the Golden Company, sort of like Bittersteel Part 2 as well. Look out for that later this month. And as for next year's coverage, one other note. We're, we should Another reason we should expect even more Song of Ice and Fire coverage than this past year is because there's only going to be seven episodes of Game of Thrones. So that will be three weeks that would have been devoted to the TV show that's going to be devoted to Song of Ice and Fire, which is a, close to the time it takes us to make an episode, a little less. But that could mean a whole additional episode next year. So I'm looking forward to that. Hope you guys are. Now, a few other things. As far as our production process, we added a few other things. We added Yoke Boy, 
to help our audio engineering go a lot better. Of course, Yoke Boy is uh, the half of the Radio Westeros team, as most of you probably know. And that about covers it for the production notes and the, the year in review. I just wanted to throw a few details out there real quick. Nothing uh, too major there. I didn't want to take up a lot of time with that, but I thought you all get a kick out of those numbers. And again, thanks to everybody who's made this possible. In particular, a couple of shout-outs. Jeff Gnarly, the Long Snapper, is History of Westeros' first sword. And of course, Lord Mark of House Joseph, the rider of Mazalakartho, the, the white dragon with green scales, horns, wings, and talons. And you can see, as you can see here, and soon this year we'll be debuting new Mazalakartho art. Uh, if, in fact, if you are an artist and want to get involved in any of our side art projects, just contact us. We are always on the lookout for talented people to help us out with these little things. So, one or two more things. We are soon, in 2017, going to be moving some of the older episodes off of our feed and into an archive feed, which will be a separate podcast feed. And the point of that is to get rid of some of the older episodes that are kind of out of date and don't reflect our current quality. Because frankly, a lot of people come to the show and one of the first episodes they check out is one of our really old ones, which I think they're fine, but they are not up to our current standards and that gives the wrong impression. So we don't really want people to have that as our first impression. So those are gonna be moving. They're gonna still be accessible very easily, but they will be uh, not, we'll be giving you details on how to get to them once they're moved away. But in the meantime, you can obviously download them now and have them forever. No matter what we do with them, you'll have a copy. So giving you a little heads up on that. Also, we are want to remind you all about the, the cons coming up in 2017. Ashea and I will be at both Con of Thrones and Ice and Fire Con. Won't go into too much detail on those right now, but suffice it to say, you can get all the information you need on our website, historyofwesteros.com. And hopefully we see you there. It's a lot of fun. There is it's really nothing like being around a huge group of people or a smaller group of people, depending. But either way, whether it's small or large, being around people who all love A Song of Ice and Fire, is there's nothing like it in the world. It's, it's, it's you can't, I can't explain it. You just have to experience it. So I hope to see some of you there. Come up and say hi. Okay, one last important announcement that we're very excited about. Some of you know Sean, who is our co-host during the TV season. He helps us with the Game of Thrones reviews. He hasn't read the book, so he's our unsullied reviewer. Some of you already know who he is. We also call him Sean of House Beard. Along with Ashea and myself, we have launched another podcast. It is not related to Game of Thrones, The Song of Ice and Fire at all. It is a discussion show, not scripted, about a variety of film and TV shows that we enjoy together. And we're going to have fun the way with our kind of like our current style, a little bit lighter maybe, uh, but just as fun and a big, much bigger variety, of course, since we won't be talking about Game of Thrones. It's going to be podcast only at this point, no video. That does help us a lot, a lot getting it launched because it makes it a little easier. We don't want to bite off more than we can chew. History of Rest is already a full-time job for me. I don't need to slow myself down on that at all, but that's the case. We've taken on the, just the right amount here. It's going to go great. We're really happy to have a second outlet to speak to you all. So check it out. It's called Fandom Media is the name of the show. You can find it on iTunes. You can link to it through our website as well. And it's going to have its own website called fandommedia.reviews. That's all I'll say on that for now. Hope to, all, hope to see you all there on our other show. If not, we'll continue with History of Westeros. Full steam ahead. Like I said, we're going to try to increase our output from 2016 to 17. But that's enough talk. Let's get to the questions. Got a lot of really good ones, as I said. And we'll start here with one something that, well, got to admit, every once in a while with all these, with all the research we do, occasionally make a small mistake. Definitely happened this time. So I'm going to start with that. Regarding Bran, 
and John and their connective dreams in A Clash of Kings. Now, what I said was about John and his first wolf dream, which had Bran in it, that I said that Bran never thinks of this dream, which maybe meant it wasn't Bran, that it was Bloodraven. No, scrap that. I should have known better. I forgot. This is such as I knew this and had forgotten when doing my research. So I don't really have a good excuse there. But the, the, the answer is, Bran does think about it. In his final chapter in Clash of Kings, which is the final chapter in Clash of Kings, he specifically says to himself, A Clash of Kings, Bran Seven. He remembered who he was all too well. Bran the boy, Bran the broken, better Bran the beastling. Was it any wonder he would sooner dream his summer dreams, his wolf dreams? Here, in the chill, damp darkness of the tomb, his third eye had finally opened. He could reach summer whenever he wanted, and once he had even touched ghost and talked to John, though maybe he had only dreamed that. So as you can see there, Bran clearly does refer to that dream very distinctly, and there's no conspiracy there. There's no blood raven. He may have been involved creating that connection magically between them, but there's no strict evidence of that. And there's certainly no evidence that he's fooling anyone. Bran is aware of what happened. John is aware of what happened. They're not quite clear on <laughs> the, on the whole thing since it's a strange magical dream. But from the reader's perspective, it's pretty clear. I have related questions that have come in about that dream, though. So we're going to continue with it. From Mevins8. I just finished a new episode, Dreams and Dreamers, and I thought about a theory I read a few years ago about John and the Crips, Leanna's tomb, and Rhaegar's harp. Are you familiar with this theory? It's old, so I'm sure it was debunked already, but I thought that it may have been touched upon during the episode when John's dreams from Game of Thrones were analyzed a little bit. But if it wasn't, it makes me think it might be irrelevant. Well, Rhaegar's harp certainly has been a long-standing theory in the fandom about what exactly is in the crypt. Something that John is supposed to know. There's always been something that John is supposed to be to find out something that's in his dreams that's telling him, come to the crypts, there's something here, there's something here. And Rhaegar's harp is very commonly suspected as that item. I do not believe this for a second. First of all, John has no context here. How is he going to learn that that was Rhaegar's harp? How did the harp get there? How does that harp have any meaning to him? I think that harp would only have meaning to the reader. And we readers already know the truth of John's parentage. Well, we think we know anyway. It's pretty, pretty well settled. So I don't, I don't understand why that would be the case. I think what's going on in that dream, the thing he's supposed to discover, is his identity. He's supposed to learn that. He's supposed to learn that his mother is Leanna. Leanna, who is in the crypts herself, which is unusual, because normally it's only for the lords that are buried there. But that's a bit of a tangent. So another, but really, I don't think this, so I don't think there's anything to the Rhaegar's harp theory. So to answer your question, yes, I do think it might be irrelevant, but I do think because it's a strong theory out there, it deserves to be addressed. But you know, at the risk of being a downer. Yeah, I don't think there's anything to that theory. I think a lot of, but a lot of other people do think there's something to it. A lot of other well-respected minds in the Song of Ice Record community. So you don't have to just take my word for it, but that is how I feel. I do not think the harp is going to play a part at all in the story. I don't certainly don't think it's in the crypts. Another related question from Mike Bruno. Has anyone considered the possibility that John is actually encountering Bran from the future? We have some anecdotal evidence that Bran can make his presence known to the visions of the past he's observing, for instance, his father hearing a noise when Bran cries out for him, and the leaf brushing Theon's cheek when he's crying his confession in front of the weirwood tree in Winterfell. Is it really beyond the realm of possibility that Bran will eventually become able to clearly communicate with people in the past? I do not think it's out of the realm of possibility. In fact, I think that is what's being set up. 
I think that's exactly what's being set up. As you point out very accurately and very um, observantly, as some of the stuff we talked about in our Werewood episode, there is sort of a language of the trees that comes through, but it sounds like rustling. Very specifically, the word rustling is used very frequently, and no other word is used. It's always that specific word when someone is trying to talk through the Werewood and there's rustling. So if you ever see rustling near a Werewood, be suspicious if that comes up in future books. So... I don't know to what level it's going to go. I don't know if there's going to be... I don't think he's going to go full-on time travel. I don't think there's going to be anything like that. But I do think that what Bloodraven said isn't possible, I think is possible. Because Bran is just that powerful. That's just a theory, of course. We'll have to see. So, here we go. I go. I, I poo-poo one theory and po po you know bring up the... The less certain theory, the more crackpotty sounding theory is the one I'm supporting in this case. <laughs> so, but that's how it goes sometimes. So I think those are really good questions. And John's crypt dreams are going to come up again in this episode. We've got a lot to say about them. There's a couple other questions that relate to them. Let's go on. Here's a question from Lady Air Ardross and others. This question came up from a few other people, but I am choosing Lady Air's version of the question. But they're very similar. Do you think there's any significance in the dream John has about the crypts after he returns to Castle Black wounded? Very good question. This got me thinking about it, and I looked very carefully at the progression. And lo and behold, I found a couple of new things, a couple of maybe patterns. Here we go. Starting with the Clash of Kings. Or rather, starting with the Game of Thrones, John has the Crypt Dream several times. Sometimes on page, sometimes he refers to having had them. By A Clash of Kings, he doesn't have them anymore. There's no Crypt Dreams in A Clash of Kings. He doesn't even mention them. But they come back in A Storm of Swords. But only when he's back on the other side of the wall. So the progression is kind of like this. He has Crypt Dreams at Castle Black and at Winterfell. Then he goes over the wall... No more crypt dreams. He starts having wolf dreams. That's when his first wolf dream happens. Then he comes back over the wall, gets wounded, gets back to Castle Black, crypt dreams start again. And then Ghost shows up a couple chapters later, and the wolf dreams start again, and there hasn't been a crypt dream since. Not in the rest of Storm, obviously not in Feast because he's not in the book, but none of them in Dance either. I don't really know what to say about that. It's very interesting, though. It might just be that George didn't want to jam these important dreams all together to try to combine too much at once, like having wolf dreams and crypt dreams all together. It just didn't work. You know, this is too much at once. But the pattern of where the dreams take place, it's kind of hard to ignore. I'm not actually sure that it's a pattern. There's not enough data there, but it's the inkling of a pattern. It might be a pattern. And if so, that might be helping us get at a little more of the whole magical source behind all this stuff, which has always been a topic of interest of mine to the side, and something that we're going to keep talking about in this episode, because we've got a couple questions related to it. Now, there's a quote here, uh, more on this John situation. Check out this progression from a chapter-to-chapter -chapter level. This is really neat, I think. Starting with this quote while he's with a grit. A storm of swords, John 5. If I could show her Winterfell, give her a flower from the glass gardens, feast her in the great hall and show her the stone kings on their thrones. We could bathe in the hot pools and love beneath the heart tree while the old gods watched over us. The dream was sweet, but Winterfell would never be his to show. It belonged to his brother, the king in the north. He was a snow, not a stark, bastard, oath-breaker and turncloak. But by the next chapter... So after what happens in that quote, he's fled the wildlings and he's badly wounded with a grit's arrow in him. 
and he's trying to warn the watch about the wildlings that are coming. What a terrible place for him to be. It's no wonder he's about to have horrible dreams. What's interesting is that they happen to be about the crypts, but it's no it's no uh, surprise that he's having guilty dreams because what a, like, like I was saying, it's a really tough place for him to be. He has to warn his brothers. He has to tell them that the wildlings are coming or they're going to get slaughtered. Those are friends of his and it's his duty. On the other side, doing so is almost certainly going to get Ygritte killed. And it does, as we saw. So here's the dream that comes shortly after that. He, as he gets back to Castle Black, he's telling, trying to warn them. And at the same time, he's being given news that's really hard for him to understand because he's lost a lot of blood. He's, he's really tired. So here's the quote that covers all this. A storm of swords, John 6. When the dreams took him, he found himself back home once more, splashing in the hot pools beneath a huge white weirwood that had his father's face. Ygritte was with him, laughing at him, shedding her skins till she was naked as her name day, trying to kiss him. But he couldn't, not with his father watching. He was the blood of Winterfell, a man of the Night's Watch. I will not father a bastard, he told her. I will not, I will not. You know nothing, Jon Snow, she whispered, her skin dissolving in the hot water, the flesh beneath sloughing off her bones until only skull and skeleton remained, and the pool bubbled thick and red. So there's a lot happening there, as you can see. His guilt over Egret is really prominent, and you can see why. And it's going to stick with him afterwards, as we saw in the last episode. He remembers the arrow as his arrow, even though it wasn't. So he blames himself very distinctly for her death. But that famous you-know-nothing line inserted in that dream masks a very subtle line because that line is so common. The way she's saying it to him, it's that it's kind of like he's denying to himself that he'll ever father a bastard. Which makes me wonder... Maybe he will father a bastard. Maybe it's exactly what they're telling. Because he says, I'm never going to do that. And the response is, you know nothing, Jon Snow. Hmm. Maybe he's going to have a son or a daughter. I don't know. Like, that seems like a long-term thing to hand, to mess with in this series. To have a kid and then have that kid grow up. Like, is there time for that? Probably not. But just consider the possibility of Jon's blood. And how, you know, magical it is. Then consider how that will be impacted by him being, you know, undead or something, raised from the dead. Now, what does that do to his blood? Then consider who the other person is. It takes two persons to make a ch child, after all. So, who's the the female in this? Is it Danny or Melisandre or something like that? Well, those people are magical, too. So, uh, much is made of bloodlines beyond ancestry in A Game of Thrones, A Song of Ice and Fire. So if there's any magic in his blood and whoever this other person's blood is, a child of theirs, it might not be the child that matters. It might be the blood of that child. That's kind of a dark thought. But this is A Song of Ice and Fire. That is not, you know, off uh, out of the range of possibility at all. So think about that carefully. I think that's really interesting. See, this is not exactly an answer to the question I was asked, but this is where it led me. And I think that's amazing. I think it's a really cool little rabbit hole to think about. Also very interesting, though, about this dream is the fact that she dies in it right before she dies for real. So is that prophecy? Or is that John just knowing what's going to happen? I think it's him knowing what's going to happen, but ah, there's still an element of prophecy in some of this that's undeniable. Here's why. Look at the end of the quote. Only her bones remain after her skin 
is sloughed off in the pool. So a couple, two different things that I think are really interesting about that. One is the fact that she dies, but it's the way she dies. It's the fact that all her skin is burned off and there's just bones left. Because that's exactly what happens to her. She dies and then they burn her. Because that's what you do with corpses. But that's the thing. That's what you do with corpses. John's dream, it's not a stretch for him to imagine her death because of his guilt. And then imagine the extension of that, which is that you burn bodies in the North nowadays because they were reminded of what happens when you don't. The Wildlings didn't forget that. The Watch did forget that, as we saw early in the series. The Wildlings never did. And John just spent a whole book with the Wildlings. So he's, it's really going to be in his head. So I'm not sure we can call that prophecy, but it's so close, so identical to what actually happened. It's kind of hard to ignore. Now, there is more to this, in fact. And what I want to point to is the fact that the interesting parallel of her being in the Winterfell pool have yet burning to death in the dream, which is kind of like this neat kind of ice and fire combo. It's like she was burned to death by ice, and arguably that was John's fault. And John is both ice and fire himself. That's kind of cool. Okay, here's more though. The next chapter, after Igrit's dead, the next John chapter is John 8. So we have John's dream about taking Igrit to Winterfell and him, you know, thinking of it as a daydream, knowing it's not realistic. Next John chapter trying to warn everybody of what's happened, and he's wounded. He finds out about his brothers and Winterfell being destroyed. Then there's the battle. The Wildlings come to the Wall, and he helps them fight them off. Then the next chapter comes, and this is when Jano Slint shows up, and this is when Jano Slint throws him in prison and sends him out to treat with Mance Raider. And here is the next dream he has while he's in prison, just before he goes out to meet Mance. This, I think, is huge. A Storm of Swords, John 8. He dreamt he was back in Winterfell, limping past the stone kings on their thrones. Their grey granite eyes turned to follow him as he passed, and their grey granite fingers tightened on the hilts of their rusted swords upon their laps. You are no Stark, he could hear them mutter in heavy granite voices. There is no place for you here. Go away. He walked deeper into the darkness. Father, he called. Bran, Rickon. No one answered. A chill wind was blowing on his neck. Uncle, he called. Uncle Benjin, father, please, father, help me. Up above he heard drums. They are feasting in the great hall, but I am not welcome there. I am no Stark, and this is not my place. His crutch slipped, and he fell to his knees. The crypts were growing darker. A light has gone out somewhere. He grit, he whispered. Forgive me, please. But it was only a direwolf, grey and ghastly, spotted with blood, his golden eyes shining sadly through the dark. Okay, so at first, is it just another crypt dream? Well... Not just another crypt dream. There's more going on in this crypt dream than any of the others. There's more elements going on. There's more different things that are outside of this crypt mystery, I think. Uh, but also, there is definite magic going on here. This is prophecy. There's no way around it. There is no way for John to know that Grey Wind is dead. He has not been informed of that yet. That is That comes shortly after this. But it definitely does not come before this. John does not know Grey Wind is dead yet. That is clearly Grey Wind that he sees in that dream. And the fact that Grey Wind is in the crypts, spattered with gore, 
is clear evidence that it's dead or that he's dead and Rob too. They kind of metaphorically or spiritually have gone to the crypts because they're dead. And that's why John's seeing them there. But still, there's no way for him to have known that. So it's definitely magic. So that's neat. Now, it's also, as I said before, the final crypt dream. And here's the thing. We may not have another chance to see a crypt dream, at least not in the same circumstances. What do I mean by that? Well, John's dead now. I don't mean that he's not coming back. I am 100% sure he's coming back, but he will be changed. That means his dreams might be different. Will he still have crypt dreams? Well, his dreams might be more confusing, but they might be clearer. This is another really interesting line of thinking that I think is really cool. People have talked a lot about how John might become more wolfish. Like if he's, once he's back, he may have that animalism in him because he spent some time in Ghost, if that's really how it goes down. That I think is very possible, but it doesn't have to be. He doesn't need Ghost to become more savage, to become more animalistic, to become more determined. What I mean by that is... The human emotion, the psychology, is one of the things I talked about at length, or that we talked about at length last episode, in terms of how it clouds our judgment on what's going on in these dreams. We see things that are distinctly magical, and we see things that are distinctly human, psychological, and then we see them together, and it's sometimes hard to see where one starts and the other ends. But if John is dead, if he is undead and thus less human, that human element may be somewhat removed from him, and he may be all about... Getting the job done. Think about Lord Beric. Think about Stoneheart. They were very single-minded with their purposes. If John, and that could be foreshadowing for what John will be like. And that is pretty intense if you think about it. All the, all the extended thoughts that come from that notion are pretty neat. I think John was more of a Beric-like character, like trying to do everything, lead from the front, you know, take all the risks himself put duty first, that kind of thing. But as Beric passed his life force on to Lady Stoneheart, Lady Stoneheart was nothing like Lord Beric. She's like a revenant bent on revenge, killing Freys and Lannisters. If that is what John becomes, you know, Stoneheart instead of, he'd be Snowheart. <laughs> Certainly no sweetheart. He, if he's that intense, if he's that murderous, imagine his enemies. He's Gonna first thing, he's gonna take out the people that tried to kill him or did kill him <laughs> because those are traitors to the watch. And if he's just hell bent on doing his duty and not as and more ruthless about it, well, those those guys are doomed. Well, we kind of already knew that anyway. But then other people are gonna be in trouble too. If he turns his 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 laser focus and his lack of moral qualms, he may shed his moral qualms. He'd be like, nope. We are facing an enemy that wants us all dead. We cannot afford to hem and haw and to not be focused on this goal. John is also more equipped than anyone else to know just how menacing and destructive the dead are because he's now kind of one of them. He feels this lack of, of human humanity. He's going to understand the enemy better than anyone else because he's going to be partly like them in some ways that we can't exactly figure out at this point. But we can kind of guess at in a general sense. So I think that's all really, really interesting. The, the, the future for John. I think some of us 
without spoiling what happens in the TV show, I think that what happened in the TV show isn't going to be very much like what happens in the books. I think it's going to be far more nuanced, far more interesting. And of course, seeing things from John's point of view is going to allow us to see things a lot deeper. One of the cool things about this that I really like is thinking about what Ramsey has gotten himself into by threatening John. He threatened John the boy. But as Maester Eamon said, you got to kill the boy and let the man be born. And oh my God, did that really happen? I don't think Eamon realized how literally it was going to happen. John was literally killed so the man can be born. Except there's going to be an undead man. <laughs> and that's what Ramsey Bolton has to deal with, not John the boy. He, he didn't know <laughs> what he was getting into. So I think that's going to play out in a very satisfying way uh, for those who like John and don't like Boltons. So there were several threads I was pursuing there with that dream and the question that got us on that path. But there's other threads that we need to address within this whole John crypt, undead, comeback kind of thing. There's a lot to discuss there. We've got a part two from Lady Error here, and I'll read that. These dreams can't be wholly prophetic. There has to be some subconscious element to all of them. I think John's dreams are leading in ultimately to Leanna's crypt, but his growing up slightly outside the family, that would have created an inner voice within him that told him he was not a Stark. This would surely be prevalent in his mind, therefore his dreams. Very good question, and you're getting at one of the main things that we've been trying to point to this whole time, which is this overlap of magic and psychology. So clearly Lady Air gets it. Another great thing she's pointing out to, though, is not just this element of John and his subconscious, but part of the question that I didn't read is she wants us to get at the connection here between Jamie and John and the, a bit of a pattern that's different between the two of them. We pointed out in the main episode that John, that rather Jamie has that dream where his mother appears and it's the first time where he's crippled in his dream. All the other dreams, he's whole. Well, in that dream we just read you from John a little while back, let me repeat one important line that's crucial here. His crutch slipped and he fell to his knees. His crutch. He is not dreaming of himself as whole in his dreams. He dreams of himself in his current injured state. And interestingly, the other parallel is that both of these revolve around their mother. John being drawn to the crypts has to do with Liana. Jamie, of course, is strictly dreaming of his mother. Of course, she tells him, is it really a dream? That's a whole other topic. In any case, that parallel is very interesting in how they perceive this dream that revolves around their mother and how they perceive themselves in that state. John feeling isolated and not part of the family. But also, the crypts clearly show that he is part of the family, just not in the way he thought. But he's also very realistic about it. His dreams, he pictures himself as he is, or as he thinks he is. <laughs> Jamie, on the other hand, was kind of lying to himself, maybe, a little subconscious yearning for what he used to be, until he's faced with the reality of his mother, a very real thing, you know, even though it's a dream, and his redemption is also beginning right around that time. So it's all very important for Jamie, and it kind of is for John, because it's a turning point for Jamie, and it's going to be a turning point for John. We just haven't seen that play out as much yet, because, you know, last we saw, he was bleeding in the snow. Here's the next question from Lord Bemmy Snugglebunny. I have a multi-part question regarding Jamie Lannister and his mother. In one of his 
dreams. Jamie's mother, Joanna, appeared to him, but she was older and he only had one hand, while he always has two in his dreams, as we were just discussing here. Do you think Jamie's mother is really alive and used a glass candle to contact him? If so, will she appear to Jamie in real life and possibly sort out some mysteries of their past? And his brother Tyrion, of course. If so, what other mysteries do you think she might enlighten us with? Or what new mysteries might she bring with her? Well, I don't think much of the possibility that she's still alive. I don't think the circumstances allow for that. Her death was very well known. There were a lot of people witness to it. And I don't see the narrative purpose of her hiding this long. I can't say it's impossible, but if, you know, put a gun to my head... I'm going to say no, that's not happening. But I do think she still has an important role to play, whether alive or not, uh, because her memories are super important, and it isn't just Jamie that can think about her. Tyrion can't because he never knew her. But Cersei is a POV also, and of course, Cersei's arc and Jamie's arc, they seem kind of tied together, and I do think we're going to learn more about Joanna. So that's got to come from one of those two most likely. I mean, there's other places we can learn about Joanna, say Barris and Selmy. But for the most part, I think Jamie and Cersei's thoughts are going to be a lot more interesting on her. And they may be a little more insightful because they were closer to her, even though they were kids when she died. They may be aware of a few things that shed light on a few things, mysteries, people's parentage, things like that, that have been discussed a lot in the fandom. We'll just have to see how that goes. But I do think that's super interesting to connect all these things together. And I definitely think Joanna is going to become more important than she has been for reasons of things that happened in her past that we're not fully aware of yet. I do think there's a lot more to that story. And I do think that it's important to note that Cersei has hardly thought of her. And I think that's got to be coming. Um, because we know they were, she was important in both of their in their lives, and we know dreams are a big part of both of these characters' arcs. Cersei's have been some of the most magically oriented dreams because she thinks so much about the Valonqar prophecy and Maggie the Frog. They aren't strictly magical dreams; they just the the thing that she's thinking about is very magical. So, turning to Joanna would be more of a mundane type of dream for her, but. I think that's such an important part of her character. We haven't gone there yet. I think it's probably going to happen. But maybe not. Maybe it's all going to be through Jamie. We'll just have to see. Now, one last thing about Joanna. Our Patreon voters have chosen Joanna Lannister and subtopics surrounding her, which includes the parentage of Tyrion, as the next Patreon voters episode. So that we made in the coming months. So thanks to everybody for voting. That was really close voting. It won 15 votes to 14, beating narrowly beating the Tournament of Hall. Third place was Blackfish. So close call there, but uh, a lot of excitement for the Joanna episode. We've got a lot of the notes ready already, so look out for that in the coming months. Here's a question from Capability Vascovich. I'd like to hear your thoughts about the source of the dreams. We're kind of circling around the issue of it's magic, don't ask questions. But it doesn't seem like George R. R. Martin writes quite that simply. Are the most important dreams actually being sent through the wearnet or glass candles by the characters pulling the strings on the respective ice slash fire sides, meaning Blood Raven or Quaith or the like? I think that is a very good question. It's the kind of out of the box thinking that I like. It's the kind of the thinking that we applied a lot to the creation of this episode. So it slides in there very nicely. During the research, we found something else that might qualify as a pattern regarding these sources. So here it is. Think back. In fact, I've already explained it, but I want to remind you of it. It's think back to that pattern I gave you all with John and when his dreams were occurring, which types they were occurring. They're wolf dreams on one side of the wall, uh, on the far side of the wall, rather, and then the crypt dreams on the other side and all that. 
that has to be whole part of this whole source subtopic of where the magic is coming from. I definitely want to be careful and urge you all to be careful in pushing too much towards the angle of who is behind everything. I don't think we want to overuse that. I definitely think Bloodraven is involved in a lot of behind the scenes things. Don't get me wrong. Quaithe also is clearly influencing Danny's dream, sending her messages. But we can't ascribe that to, you know, all these mysteries because that it's just too simple. And this is not the kind of story we're dealing with. Things are going to be more complicated than that. Things are going to have human elements behind them as often as they are going to have magical elements. Often those things are going to be combined, just like they are in these dreams. So I think it's a little more likely that this is a pattern that George didn't want to go too deep into early on. But he also had different things he wanted to show us with John because like... Like we've shown with these dreams, John's are among the most important. His actually talk about the future, where Arya has wolf dreams. They don't really reflect what's coming for her. Sansa, for example, who we're going to talk about soon, she has the least magical dreams of all. She also has the least magic in her arc. She's surrounded by Peter Baelish and, you know, Sweet Robin and the Knights of the Vale. There's no wolf dreams. There's no faceless men. There's no... You know, you're the, you might be the prince that was promised. <laughs> you might be, you're the mother of dragons. None of that stuff. Sansa's is the least magical. So all these things, but, but surely she's going to get involved in the greater northern events and her arc is going to have some magic in it. It's all going to come together at some point. But I'm going off on a tangent there. So a second part of this question that's asked here is, are these types of dreams each representative of different lineages? In other words, is, are the wolf dreams evidence of John's ice Stark heritage and are the crypt dreams his fire heritage somehow well, that seems like it's part of his starkness too because it's wrapping up around Lyanna but it's Lyanna's story which is you know wrapped up with Rhaegar so it's kind of like the crypt dreams are representing his hidden fire identity so in a sense there's a bit of a ice and fire combo going on there though maybe it's a little bit of a stretch but I think it's cool to point to and I don't want to undersell the possibility, like I said, I don't want to undersell the possibility of Bloodraven getting involved. I mean, he's, after all, Bloodraven is involved in Bran's third chapter. He's probably the one that sent the direwolves, too. I mean, that's never been explained, and it doesn't really fit with a logical explanation. Direwolves have been seen south of the Wall in 200 years, and they just happen to be right there at that time. That's too much of a coincidence. That You know, maybe it could be. I mean, it doesn't have to be too much of a coincidence. But it sounds to me like it's not a coincidence that it was arranged. So Bloodraven's been involved. He's been pulling the strings the whole time. So I definitely get the instinct uh, to ascribe mysterious things to him. And I've done it myself. But we also have to not just settle on that. Because it is too easy. It's like, well, Bloodraven did it. It's, it's kind of too easy to settle on sometimes. So... It's a little bit of give and take there. I think, yes, a lot of these dreams are being manipulated by others. Maybe the children are getting involved. Maybe there's other forces at work. Uh, but And I do think more of this is going to be explained. I don't think we're ever going to have the full answers because George wants the magic to remain mysterious. But we're going to know more than we do now. Something to look forward to. Another part of this whole side question here with the sourcing. I think that's really interesting. It's something we've talked about a lot. We talked about it quite a bit in the Great Empire of the Dawn episode and in other places. The overlap of certain kinds of magic, the similarities between prophecy is, you know, the prophecies that come from, say, the Ghost of Highheart or prophecies that come from Melisandre or Makoro using completely different kinds of magic, but with very similar results. And it's almost like 
George has always told us that he's not he's going to be ambiguous about whether the gods are real or not. The gods may just be a product of the human imagination, ascribing things they can't explain to higher power. But this is a fantasy world, and there may very well be magical sources that people can draw on. But it might all be one source. It might just be one thing that everyone else interacts with different ways, and they give it a name, they give it. You know, one culture gives it this name, one culture gives it this name. Another culture figures out how to use it a little differently than this culture. But the common elements are so similar. There's resurrection magic everywhere. There's obviously the prophecy magic, which we talked about. There's dreaming magic all over the place, as we've been showing, like, relentlessly in this last episode and a half here. So all this magical sourcing stuff is a really fascinating subtopic, but at the same time, it's hard to really dig into anything tangible. It's all just ranges of possibility and, and different permutations of different ideas and, and how they can explain different open mysteries that we have. It's like, does this magic, would this explain this particular mystery? It might, but don't lose sight of the human element. They both are a part of the story. Here is a question from Joanne Coughlin. Can you talk a bit about how Santa's dream in her last Storm of Swords chapter, beautifully written, George R. R. Martin, influences her actions and character development in that chapter? Good question, and a good segue away from the extreme magic to the non-magic. As I just said, Sansa's arc is probably the least magical of all the POVs. Here's a quote. A Storm of Swords, Sansa 7. She awoke all at once, every nerve a tingle. For a moment, she did not remember where she was. She had dreamt that she was little, still sharing a bedchamber with her sister, Arya. But it was her maid she heard tossing in sleep, not her sister. And this was not Winterfell, but the Airy. And I am Elaine Stone, a bastard girl. The room was cold and black, though she was warm beneath the blankets. Dawn had not yet come. Sometimes she dreamed of Sir Illyn Payne and woke with her heart thumping. But this dream had not been like that. Home. It was a dream of home. So I would say that for Sansa, a dream of home and a dream of hope are very similar things. And I don't just mean the difference between a P and an M in the word. I mean that literally they are very similar. She's hoping to return home. She dreams of home. She wants to go back there. It contains all these great memories, even though it's been kind of destroyed and a lot of her family is dead. It's still her sense of who she is. And it's an important thing for her to hang on to because she's Elaine Stone at this point. She is going through a different kind of character development in that she's pretending to be someone else. And she's pretending to be it so much, as Peter said, you got to do it in your heart. You have to be a lane stone in your heart. And Santa's doing that. She's trying very hard and getting good at it. Now, she's also aware that home is the source of everyone else's interest in her for the most part. I mean, she's got other qualities, but her claim is the thing that gives her this value out in the world that kind of is why she's this sort of classic princess in a tower type character or, you know, songbird in a cage, gilded cage type character. Because that claim is just so valuable. It's why she was, you know, the Tyrells and the Lannisters and now Littlefinger. They're all, that's what they want. And she knows that now. She doesn't fully realize the implications of that, but she's realizing that she 
It isn't just being used for that. That she, hey, she's got some power here too. That claim doesn't give other people power over her. If she le- if she doesn't just let them, if she allows that to happen, then hey, that's when it's going to happen. But if she takes more agency, which I think we're starting to see, then certain people are going to have their plans fall apart. And by certain people, I certainly mean Peter Baelish. So with her, it's really going to come down to her interactions with her family learning that they're alive again. That's going to be the next big step for her in her character development. And I wonder what kind of dreams she's going to have after finding out, however she finds out, that all of these members of her family that she thought were dead, the fact that she kind of thought she was alone in the world isn't as true as as she thought. That's going to also throw into question her claim, which she's just coming to realize has so much value and that she can capitalize on that. That's going to be kind of tossed in the air as well. It's going to be changed. So a lot of big things coming for Sansa, especially if she goes north. All that's going to become very confusing, but also very cool. Okay, thank you for that question. Let's move on. We've got another one here from Rob Swellsy. I must, of course, apologize in advance to anyone whose name I mispronounce. I'm imperfect in that way, like we all are. <laughs> Here's the question. You mentioned this briefly, but do you think the ghost of Highheart was more invested in Jenny slash Duncan the Small that she gave more information, or did nobody get that the dragon imagery is supposed to be a sigil? You know, that's a really common thing for these dreams to see, to represent animals that are sigils, which means that that represents a character from that house. It's a really very common and easy thing to detect. But that doesn't mean that all the characters in the story are always detecting that. For us, the reader, it's very clear. But maybe not all the characters. Some of the characters, but not all. So, to answer this question, first of all, it's a very juicy subtopic. I mean, dreams and prophecies coming together. As you saw, we couldn't cover all of it. So, it's a big, big, massive topic. And I do think it's there's going to be less of it. I think the farther, deeper we go into the story, the less room there is for prophecy. Because prophecies are telling us what's coming. And the closer we get to the end, there's less a need to tell us what's coming because we're there. We're at the end. We're close to the end. You don't need to keep doing that. So the ones we have now, I think, are going to be the most important ones. I don't know that we're going to get a lot more. We may get more and more dreams. We may get some very important dreams. But prophecies, I think we're going to see less and less of those, although we're not done yet. I still think there's going to be more. And by getting back to the Ghost of High Heart more specifically, a couple of things to unpack there. Uh, we talked a, a good deal about how that might be one of the things she is so guilty about. She has these horrible memories of Summerhall, and it seems to be maybe not just a, well, a terrible thing happened there. She may feel partly responsible for it. And we notice that she doesn't interpret any of her dreams for the Brotherhood. They are fairly easy to, as far as these things go, uh, relatively speaking, to understand, especially in retrospect. And as we pointed out, all of them have come true now. But there may have been a time where she acted differently. All the other seers, oracles, whatever you want to call them, offer interpretations of what they're seeing in one way or another, except for the Ghost of High Heart. They, she doesn't want to interpret it. And maybe that's because of how badly it burned her. Eh, pun intended. Wildfire. So maybe that is a big part of this whole thing. Her guilt is that she caused that chain of events with her bad interpretation that led to so much pain and sorrow for the realm and her personally and the people close to her who died because of it. But it's just as compelling to imagine that it was somebody else's bad interpretation like Rhaegar who, who saw the Ghost of High Heart, knew that she had this reputation for accuracy, perhaps had it proved to him by her making several other predictions that came true and him saying, look, this person always gets it right. And she's saying this thing about the prince that was promised, blah, 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 blah. Of course he's going to believe her because she's 
proven herself as a prophet, but there's still that matter of screwing up the interpretation that has burned so many people that Maester Marwyn, Archbishop Marwyn talks about how prophecy is, well, we don't need to go into that quote, biting off the, yeah, you know what. Anyway, to sum up there, though, I definitely don't think just, I don't think this is what was being suggested by the questioner Rob here. But to be clear, I don't think the Ghost of High Art had any kind of ulterior motive. I don't think the Ghost of High Art was, you know, as an agent of the old gods, was trying to mess up these Targaryens. I don't think that's what's happening. She seems to be genuinely sorrowful over what happened. Those are real emotions. I don't think she's tricking anybody. But there is more to the story. It's just I don't think that she intentionally caused any of this harm. Okay, let's move on to another question. From Curveball with a K and a V. Are there any theories on the predictability of a tar- of the Targaryen dreamers based on, say, who we know that had that gift, including Blackfires and any other descendants of, you know, bastard families or where marriages happen like T.R. Tolland, which we gave the example of last episode? In other words, are there more? Is it more commonly males? Is it more commonly females? Is it more common amongst the incest pairings or not? I love the instinct to look for that. This is right up our alley trunk because, as you guys saw, we, we put a lot of effort into categorizing some of these things. This attempt to categorize or get at more of the sourcing of these dreams, of this material, totally appreciate that effort. It did did get me to do that. I looked. I tried to find patterns with that, but I didn't. <laughs> Couldn't find anything. So good open question. If we get more information on the dreams and dreamers from the Targaryen side, then maybe we'll be more interested when we revisit this question. But for now, I couldn't find anything. Maybe, maybe maybe there's a slight tilt towards the dreamers being more commonly female, but even that is a bit of a stretch because, I mean, Aemon may have been having the dreams. Daemon uh, Blackfire the second definitely had the dreams. Daron the Drunkard definitely had the dreams. There's still plenty of male candidates. It's just that some of the, the, the female ones maybe stand out more, partly because the most famous dreamer of all, Daenys the Dreamer, but who says there weren't others who came before her? There must have been, and we just don't know their names. There's just not enough data. So that's that. This next question comes to us from Tina Sundstrom, a.k.a. Ninial. What dreams do you think are prophecies for the future books? And what do you think they tell us about the future? Well, that question wins the award for most open-ended question. We That would be... I feel like we could do several episodes on that question. <laughs> but it is a good question. It is an important question. And I'm going to narrow it down a little bit because it's too big, but I think uh, just this little bit of narrowing down is still going to be, uh, I think is really interesting from what we've, uh, we've come up with here. I think that what's very interesting is looking at the POVs as a whole and looking at their dreams as a whole, how very few of them are actually dreams of their future. There are some dreams that tell us future for the series that aren't tied to specific characters. But if we look at each individual's dreams about themselves, very few of them are a foretelling. They're mostly about Identity uh, or changing identity. Cersei, Jamie, Arya. Arya has no dreams of her future, but she still has Nymeria dreams like crazy. And Sansa has, of course, we've talked about no magic at all, but she's changing too. She has these dreams about her identity and her, you know, what the person that she's becoming is going to become. In a sense, that tells you a bit about their future, but it isn't prophecy. That's just regular literary foreshadowing a lot of these times. So I think if you look at the characters that do have dreams that tell their future or that foreshadow their future in a prophetical way rather than a literary way. John, as we've saw, seen a lot in this episode, is right at the top of the list, right there with Danny. Although Danny's is a little cloudier. Uh, even Danny's dreams, 
Not discounting the dreams that predicted her being the mother of dragons, which was her immediate future rather than her eventual future. Uh, we have Danny, certain things that she's going to do in the future, melting an army of ice at the trident. She has that vision. But her ultimate fate, less certain, less certain. Maybe, you know, there's the prophecy of the stallion that mounts the world isn't really a dream. That kind of applies to her. But again, that's not a dream. So I think if we're looking at which character's dreams t most tell their future, I'd say it's John. And there aren't a lot of other examples. Besides maybe some hints that death is coming for some of these characters, which is not really a big stretch or isn't necessarily something that needs to be predicted. We kind of know that George is going to have to cut down the number of POVs, and that's going to be by cutting them down, literally, or burning them to death or some sort of horrible death. Whatever George has in mind for these poor characters. So I think that's a really interesting observation. This, this, I think that's the one of the best ways I can handle this question without delving into each individual arc and each individual dream is to look at it as a whole and to say that, huh, very few of the characters actually qualify for that, for people, for something that the dreams tell us what's coming for them. So I think that's kind of neat. As, despite all the prophecy in A Song of Ice and Fire, the fates of individual characters, for the most part, is not revealed in those prophecies or in those dreams. Things that they become, but not their fate. Especially, I mean, Bran is a perfect example of that. Bran, he's got, his arc is deeply wrapped up in magic. It's clearly the most magical arc of all. He's been having dreams since chapter three, magical dreams. He's been having wolf dreams for a while. And he's in this cave, Blood Raven's cave. He's dealing with the children. But even he, with his, he's seen visions of the past. He's seen all the stuff. Even he, we have not seen any kind of prophetical dream, that from him or anyone that really speaks to what's coming for him as a character. We know what's coming from his situation. We know there's truths coming about the past. We know there's truths coming about other characters. But for Bran, I got no idea. Okay, so let's look again at a quote that shows of the... I think this is... We had this quote in our Great Empire of the Dawn episode, which is why we didn't bring it back in the next episode for Dreams. But... It's too important to completely forget about, so here it is, and this is, by the way, one of the things I think is the most revealing for any character as to what's coming for them in their future, the most distinct, the most clear. Here it is. They are all gone. They have abandoned me. Burning shafts hissed upward, trailing tongues of fire. Scarecrow brothers tumbled down, black coats ablaze. Snow, an eagle cried. As foemen scuttled up the ice like spiders, John was armoured in black ice, but his blade burned red in his fist. As the dead men reached the top of the wall, he sent them down to die again. He slew a greybeard and a beardless boy, a giant, a gaunt man with filed teeth, a girl with thick red hair. Too late, he recognised Ygritte. She was gone as quick as she'd appeared. The world dissolved into a red mist. John stabbed and slashed and cut. He hacked down Donal Noy and gutted deaf Dick Follard. Corin Halfhand stumbled to his knees, trying in vain to staunch the flow of blood from his neck. I am the Lord of Winterfell, John screamed. It was Rob before him now, his hair wet with melting snow. Longclaw took his head off. Then, a gnarled hand seized John roughly by the shoulder. He whirled and woke 
with a raven pecking at his chest. Snow, the bird cried. So again, they're all gone. Eh, last hero, anyone? Everyone's abandoned him. That's what it sounds like. And then he's killing his already dead brothers. Is that Night's Watch guilt? Is that him, you know, questioning his own leadership or anything like that? Is, but Rob, I mean, he can't have guilt about Rob, right? Or can he? You know, he tried to ride off in Game of Thrones to go help his father after he heard what happened to him. And then he had to come back because he took his oath and his brothers brought him back, etc. Is that part of his guilt? He did want to go fight with Rob, but that's still not entirely clear if that's what he's feeling guilty for. That would make sense, though. Now, his foreshadowing who he's going to be as far as the king in the north, maybe, but the king of winter, that I think hits a little harder. And I think that title fits better. After all, the dream did have Rob with snow in his hair. That sounds like a crown of sorts, metaphorically, and if it's if so, that's the crown of winter. Snow in your hair, not the actual King of the North crown that Rob had, which was, you know, made of bronze and, and iron. So, if anything, we're seeing a King of Winter metaphor, not a King in the North, or a King of Winterfell, or a Lord of Winterfell type thing. So, I think that's an interesting little nuance there. Now, I think the most, the, the easiest to miss out of all that, but maybe the most curious bit is that right before he awakes in that dream, a gnarled hand grabs him and pulls him around and he wakes up. Who is that? Who is this gnarled hand? That's really curious because his dream is so intense and there's important figures in it. Is it supposed to be like his dead well, father, that couldn't be, I mean, Rhaegar, that doesn't make sense. Could it be Ned? Could it be one of the White Walkers? I really, I'm baffled at who this could be, but I think it's a really interesting question. And I really wonder, and I haven't seen it discussed much in the fandom, that little, it's just such a easy thing to gloss over because there's so much else going on in this vision, which is something George does a lot, by the way. He has visions or dreams or just paragraphs that have a lot going on which masks something important, subtle, that's going on amongst all that. That's something George does extremely well. And this is, might be a very good example of that. Maybe it's just a dream thing. Maybe, maybe it's nothing. Maybe there's no, that person pulling him, his shoulder is completely irrelevant. It could just be a dream thing. But it could be huge, right? <laughs> I think that if you're looking at some of these other characters and what their dreams can tell us as well, one other thing I wanted to say about that is, you know, Asha, Ariane, Barristan, these characters, we talk about how very little their dreams can tell us, although they do have dreams that tell us a few things. Some of them don't have dreams at all. But they don't dream of winter in any way. And other characters are having dreams of winter. And that, I think, is super interesting. Danny, of course, I gave you that example of her fighting the army of ice. John has all kinds of dreams involving snow and winter. Melisandre has visions that involve snow and winter. There's just a lot of that going on. And it seems like, well, that's because the others are getting closer. But it's interesting that they're, they're not prevalent amongst these other characters that have the sensitivity. Maybe that's just coming for them, or maybe just George didn't want to overdo it. Okay. Now, finally, on this topic, uh, Cersei, her, her life, I've touched on this a little bit already, but her life is the, maybe the most wrapped up in a single magical event, which is the prophecy that defines her life. So in some ways... Prophecy affects her personally and for longer, certainly. She, it's been with her since she's a child, which isn't the case with some of these other children, or characters rather, 
Uh, some of them are children, which is why they uh, haven't had a long time to deal with this. It hasn't been a part of their life so long. But none of them have a prophecy that they're going to die after their children die. That's the most, by far, the most specific that any anyone, and it's pretty terrible. Uh, maybe not so terrible because Cersei is hard to like, but it's still terrible in a nutshell uh, as far as fates go. And it does, you know, explain a lot of why she's so terrible and paranoia. Uh, paranoiac? Is that a word? So it's, whatever. Why she's so paranoid. <laughs> it explains it. Okay, so I think there's a lot more to say there, but I don't want to spend too much time on that one question because it's a very open-ended question. So I encourage everybody to consider that angle and be wary when you're reading chapters in the next book or two realize how rare dreams that tell the fate of that character are. It seems like there's more of them, but there's not really. So that when you see one something like that, it's going to stand out. It should send off alarm bells in your head and say, hey, this is rare. We don't see much of this. Pay attention. All right, let's move on to a question from Joe Jessup. Westeros history, don't you think that the two heads Tyrion has in his dream is a reference to Maelys the Monstrous? And that this dream is George R. R. Martin announcing to everyone that Tyrion is a Lannister slash Blackfire bastard. That is related to another question by Gus Gare. Two heads in the Tyrion dream might represent his dual house lineage. His Targaryen side was happy to kill him while his Lannister side was weeping. Okay, so I'm going to answer these questions together because they're so very related, though not quite the same. First of all, I don't really see how Tyrion could be a Blackfire. I just don't see how that could possibly happen. Joanna is definitely his mother, and I really don't see how Joanna could have mingled with a Blackfire at all. She could have de she could have slept with Ares. That is on the table as a possibility, even though some people really hate it. You can't deny the possibility of it. Well, you can, but I'd say you shouldn't. <laughs> but that doesn't mean agreeing with the theory. I'm just saying you have to admit that it's possible. So that would make him a Targaryen bastard, though, not a Blackfire. There's, that just... Um, I don't quite see how that bloodline could fit into things. However, the observation of the two heads being similar to Melis the Monstrous as far as being associated with these sellsword companies, especially the Golden Company, which is what he was a part of, and being on the side of these people that are coming to take the throne, that in a sense fits, leading to Gus's question relating to Melis uh, maybe not being the connection, although it's hard to to not catch that. I think that's a good parallel, although maybe it isn't what George had in mind. It's worth examining. I do think the dual lineage thing is potentially what's being shown here. If not dual lineage, dual loyalties. That, I think, is the most likely interpretation among many possible interpretations. In other words, I think that his split personality, meaning split loyalties, is the most likely thing that's going on here. But, as I just explained in the prior section, more than one thing can be going on here. George is very good at pushing multiple meanings across in one sequence here. So it could mean both. It could be, you know, a split between Targaryen and, and Lannister in terms of his lineage. But it's definitely a split in his personality in terms of his loyalty because He's laughing in one scene while killing his father and his brother. His other head is crying because he's going against his own family. I think that, that, that has to be part of it. That can't not be a really important psychological factor for somebody to go against their own family. That's too big of a thing to just not count. You can't be like, oh, Tyrion doesn't care about that. No, he spent the huge parts of the early parts of Dance of Dragons lamenting what he had done, lamenting what he's become, being depressed, being sad, being almost suicidal. That isn't just because he lost his station. That's because, and because everybody thinks he's a kinslayer. Certainly that's a big part of it. But he's now ostracized. He's a kinslayer 
which means a lot, but it means because of the title and the, you know, people thinking of him that way. But let's be honest, people already hated Tyrion. They already thought he was a terrible person, not justifiably, but they thought it. So going against his own family, that's just a cultural thing that you do not do in Westeros. That's why the kinslaying taboo is so big, because you just don't do it. And that's what he's become. So that's going to tear you apart, I think, inside. And I think that's this, the two heads are two split aspects of his personality. But again, I'm not discounting the possibility that it refers to his split lineage. Next question comes from Gaius Aurelius, the Sea Lord of Bravos. He has a two-part question here. John's dream of, well, two questions, not two parts. <laughs> first, first one, John's dream of himself armored in black, ice, and fighting the Night's Watch. Is that solid foreshadowing that John, not Stannis, will become the new Night's King? Good thing we've already had this quote in this episode, so I refer you back to that. I do think that John is far more likely to be uh, a Night's King type figure than Stannis. I think Stannis is certainly important and his role is large still. But John is clearly the more important character in my mind. He's the one that has the prophetic dreams of him being an important kind of last hero-y type figure, not Stannis. Now, that begs another question. Does John, does John's arc pointing him towards being the new last hero, Azor Ahai-ish maybe thing, maybe mean that he can't also be Night King type thing? I don't know. Uh, I don't think so. I think he can be, I think he can be, fulfill multiple prophecies, just like Danny is. Danny is almost certainly the stallion that mounts the world. And the whole religion of R'hllor basically believes she's Azor Ahai. And there's a whole lot backing that up. You know, hatching dragons from stone, with the red comet bleeds. All, I don't need to go through all that again. But you understand that she checks off so many of those boxes. While also checking off all these boxes on the prophecy of the stallion who mounts the world. So it, the precedent has been set that, that characters, especially these main characters, can be multiple heroic figures at once. Uh, of course, Nice King isn't exactly a heroic figure, but he is a, you know, a major historical myth of sorts that there seems to be modern parallels to. So definitely I agree with that. Way more likely to be John than Stannis. We can't discard the possibility that it's Stannis, but I'm with you that that's far more likely. If you think about it, why this would happen, well, some of the things are already happening. John's about to be undead, and I talked earlier about how he might lose some of his humanity. He might lose some of what made him a good guy. Like he cared about individuals. You know, he, he wasn't, that's was one of the struggles he was faced with from going from soldier to commander was that he was now responsible for people's lives. And being a commander sometimes means you have to send people to their death because if you don't, more people will die. I don't think John's going to have qualms about that nearly as much as he used to. He's not going to be just like, well, I have to take whatever danger I'm giving to other people. I'm going to have to do myself. I think he's going to have a far more like rigid, this is what has to happen this isn't about bravery. This isn't about me putting myself in danger. My own attitudes don't even matter. Like what Corrin Halfhand told him, your personal honor is nothing compared to the safety of the realm. John is going is start, to starting to come to terms with that, maybe subconsciously by just flouting the advice of his subcommanders and doing what he thought needed to be done regardless of what people thought. Of course, that backfired on him because he didn't consider how far they'd go to stop him. He didn't consider assassination, probably. In fact, he downplayed the possibility when Melisandre warned him. But we have to think that Ned raised John. Ned is John's father, whether he was his sire or not. Uh, there's no way around that. John was raised by Ned. It doesn't, you know, it's interesting where his bloodline came from. But I still consider Ned his father, just like I consider any real person out there who's been adopted 
that their adoptive father is their father. That's the one who raised them. That's the one who went through the effort. That's the one who got to know the kid. That's the one who did everything. That's the father. Father and sire are not the same thing. Sire is blood. Father is the person that raised you. And in this case, John clearly is a lot like Ned. We see these things. He takes these duty issues very seriously. And as Eamon told him, duty and love don't work together. Well, hey, what's better? <laughs> what's a better solution for having too much love messing with your duty than being killed? <laughs> Robbing you of those human emotions. I wonder how much love John is going to have in his heart still, if he can have any. Uh, I find that those potentials extremely fascinating, what John's character is going to turn into. I've, I've talked about it a lot this episode. What if Melisandre saves John the way Thoros saved Beric? What if Beric passing that on to Lady Stoneheart isn't a parallel to him becoming, you know, Snowheart or whatever I called it earlier? What if it instead suggests that John will pass that force on to somebody else, like Beric did? John will pass his life force on to somebody else that's important because... Well, for whatever reason Beric did it, John will be faced with a similar situation where he thinks this is necessary. He has to give himself up for someone else to continue on. Maybe it's Daenerys. Maybe he has to save Daenerys for her to save the world. Or maybe he does that out of love to save Arya, to keep, to keep her alive. I don't know, but I think that Beric, Stoneheart, and Thoros as Melisandre, these are parallels to each other in a lot of ways and maybe the things that happened in this first section with Beric and, and Stoneheart might tell us what's going to happen with John, at least in a vague sense. We know that he's going to be instrumental in the final conflicts. That's so clear uh, he that he's, you know, going to be there for the most important moments of the series in one way or another, but whether he makes it through to the other side, that is where it becomes sketchy and uncertain. And since he's already dead now and coming back, I don't know that he can go on to have a normal life after, say, let's say they defeat the others and somehow the political situation is stabilized and John somehow lives through all that. What's he going to be? He's going to be just some shell, like uh, not human, you know. Ah, it's. I don't think John's going to have a happy ending, sorry to say. But I do think he'll have a heroic ending. So there is that. Another parallel to Night's King that fits really well here is if John, like he, like Corrin perhaps suggested or perhaps foreshadowed that their own honor is not important, what would be more fitting than for John to go out in a way that's kind of similar to his father? What did Ned do? Why did Ned give his life up? Why did Ned lie? Why did he admit to something that he didn't do? To save his kids. He didn't care about his own honor until... Varys talked about Sansa and Arya and how they would be hurt, you know, unless he falsely confessed. Think of that parallel with John. John becomes the bad guy, Knight's King, in memory, not in truth, because of how he's remembered, but not because of what he actually did. Ned's remembered as a traitor, but we know he's a good guy. John, if he's remembered as Knight King, that's not a good memory. People are thinking he's some bad guy, but we readers might know the truth that John gave his life and his honor to protect those he loved most, which might mean the realm. It might mean the people close to him. Who knows? It might mean both. So I guess that's kind of a bold prediction for John's arc. But I do think there's something to it. I think some of that is probably going to come out to be true, little bits and pieces here and there, maybe a lot of it. Anyway, those are my thoughts on that. Okay, the second part of this question. Actually, this is part 1A of that question. The whole idea of Melisandre and John making shadow babies, 
With after John is undead with his crazy wolf and dragon blood. Hmm. Melisandre already mentioned that the shadows she brings forth at the wall because of the wall's power are going to be fearsome. But what if John is the you know the sire of these shadow babies with his crazy blood? Ooh, that that's interesting. <laughs> that could be some serious high magical stuff right there. Okay. The next question, also from Gaius Aurelius. Very, this is kind of a point of interest. This is kind of a fun question. King Magor I was unconscious for 27 days following his trial by seven. And as soon as he awoke, he mounted Beleriand and burnt down the sept on Rhaenys' hill. My question is, what do you think Magor saw in his dreams? I mean, that's 27 days of dreaming. Okay, in, in the last episode, first of all, that's a great question. This is the most uh, entertaining question, I think. Um, the most, uh, ima most imagination-provoking uh, and also a bit terrifying because... Holy crap, Magor's dreams were probably frightening. I mean, Magor the Cruel, he loved torturing animals. He loved killing and fighting. And he was extremely savage and brutal. And yeah, I imagine his dreams were a bit like a slightly less crazy Gregor Clegane's. In the last episode, we talked about how Euron's dreams would be frightening, especially while in Shade of the Evening. Well, those would be frightening for a different reason. Those would be frightening for the, the vast landscapes and his crazy wide all expanding epic imagination for the possibilities of his or himself. Whereas I'd say Magor is probably a little dimmer. He probably doesn't have that kind of imagination. It's probably just straight gore brutality. Probably more of a slasher film. While Euron would be like a... They'd both be like horror movies. Euron's would be like um, an intellectual like suspense film where like you never know what's going to happen, but you know something bad's going to happen. Whereas Magor's dreams would be like a slasher film. Just straight up, you know, he's Jason going around hacking the the teenage campers down and enjoying himself while doing it. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> that's Magor for you. <laughs> now, yeah, I'd say... Okay. <laughs> A little bit to cut there. Next one. I'm just going to try to the next one anyway. Uh, so... All right, we're going to have one more question before our credits. And then there's one question that I save for after the credits because it's a little bit spoilery. It deals with the Forsaken chapter. So I don't want to talk about it in case some of you are being spoiler-reversed because we haven't touched on any Winds of Winter stuff here, at least not in any specific way, maybe vague terms. So that question is, it's our kind of indulgent question. And that is, this is from Kevin Berthoff. You may have covered this in your previous video and I missed it, but do any of you have a favorite dream sequence and why does it resonate with you? Well, I my favorite, and I think it's also a Shea's, I'll speak for her as well, and it may, to be fair, maybe just because it's so new, <laughs> is the dream sequence in The Forsaken. So I'm not going to talk about that too much because I'm going to save discussion for that until after the credits, which are imminent. After the credits, I will discuss... The Forsaken chapter dreams in more detail because we saved one specific question just for that. Thanks for the question, Kevin. I definitely think that that chapter is my favorite in terms of dreams. But like I said, maybe just because it's new and you know, I haven't had as much time to reflect on it. And, you know, after a few years go by, maybe I'll go back to thinking that one of these John dreams is great because of just how specific they are. I am a big fan of that Tyrion dream with his two heads because I think there's so many different interpretations of it. But it's really hard to pick. I, I feel like the best answer, the most honest answer for me might be the dream that I is my favorite is the one that I'm most thinking about that moment. Because <laughs> I, I love some of them so much. I think the one I'm focused on currently is the one that I like the most. Mm. 
Thanks, of course, to everyone who made this episode possible, starting off with the history of Westeros bards. That's Jesse Kowal for this outro music and Joey Townsend for the intro music. Thanks to Michael Klarfeld for the video intro. That's Michael Klarfeld at claradox.de. Thanks to our voice actors, the same two we had for the main Dreams and Dreamers episode. That's Martin Lewis of Echoes of Ice and Fire. He's also known as The Reaper. And also Mikhail Schick from Vassals of Kingsgrave podcast. Highly recommend checking them out as well. Those stats I gave at the beginning of the episode, well, I gotta tell you, those numbers would look a lot smaller if not for the support of our patrons. So if you'd like to help us grow those numbers even larger in 2017, sign up at historyofwesteros.com or go straight to patreon.com slash historyofwesteros and choose the reward level that's best for you. We'll appreciate it no matter what. Let's give some thanks. The mysterious BR, Hand of the King, Lord Jim the Fortuitous, Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire blog, and Warden of the West. I highly recommend checking out his recent appearance on Radio Westeros. Also thanks to Lord George Stormsville the Cunning, Lord of the Chiliad and Warden of the East. Beth the Unfrozen, Lord of the Bricks, and Castle Crimson Light, and Warden of the North. Lady Kelly McMath of Covington, Lady of the Villa Hills and Crescent Springs, is Warden of the South. Our King Beyond the Wall is Rowan at Cantrell, wielder of the Valyrian Spoon, for the night is dark and full of turnips. Sea Lord Grayson Aurelius of Bravos is Blood of the Titan, Sentinel of the Narrow Sea, and Grand Cardinal of the Temple of Yog Safa. There has been activity between the two lately. It could lead to war. King Beyond the Wall sends a message to the Sea Lord of Bravos saying, No deal can be made until he repents from worshipping the Master of Squishers, Grumpkins, and the Deep Lords. The Sea Lord is said to have responded, This upjumped wildling chief seeks to offend not only the Sea Lord, but the great city of Bravos and the Temple of the Gate, the Key, and the Guardian as well. This folly must not go unpunished. We'll see how that goes in the coming weeks. Our small council is led by Lord James Inkblade, the Scholar Knight, Master of Whisperers, Grand Maester Saria of the Barrows, Cinder of the Citadel, Lord Robert Jacobs, Master of Coin, Rosie the Clever, Cleverer, Cleverest, is our Master of Laws, Lord James Tuttle is Master of Ships, and it's a good time to be so. Our lords and ladies in their castles include Lady Dire Liz of Castle Naki, the Alpha Patron, Lord Dan of the Red Mountains and Castle Great Bell, Breaker of the Second Stone, Lord Skip of the Belt, Lord of Castle Ganges, Mary Meg, Lady of the Bloody Stepstones, Gregor the Toasty, Lord of the Breadfort, Alicia Everlasting of the Greenblood is Lady of Desert Rose, Lord Ryan of Castle Stonegate is Guardian of the Rocky Mountain Pass, Lord Garen de Havilland is of Devil's Hand Keep, Lord Brandon Slate is the North's Hammer, Harbinger of the Old Gods, Ashlyn Winter is the Hawk's Eye, Lady of Castle Skyfall, Lady Mikkel of Moonacre is Leader of the Werewood Protectorate Alliance, Lord Barone of Hillcrest is Lord of the Halls and Wielder of the Valyrian Steel Machete Everglades. Lord Alistair Whitaker is Lord of the Dawnhold. Lord Bemmy Snugglebunny is Guardian of the Hidden Hundred Acre Werewood and Holder of the Vorpal Snugglebunny. Lord Osborne of Castle Werewoods, our roots run deep. Lord Brandon Brewer of Castle Blackrune is Sworn Ellsmith to House Stark, Grand Master of the Zithamanthers Guild and Keeper of the Buzz. And Lord Imriel of House Jordain. Also, King's Justice Sir Troy the Steady, wielder of the Valyrian Steel Blade Fate, and Kingsguard Lord Commander Dovington of Red Bear. Bringing up the rear, last but not least, are the members of the history of Westeros' Night's Watch. Lord Commander Daenerys Flint of the Nightfort, avenging the memory of Brave Danny. First Ranger Fabian Flowers, the Basher of Greenshield, and First Builder Patchface of Motley Alright, anyone who stuck around after the credits for this last question, this spoiler question on the Forsaken, here we go. Question from Divya Sukdio. Again, hopefully I got that name right. Bran's dream where he sees dreamers impaled reminded me of the Forsaken chapter where gods are impaled on the Iron Throne. What are your thoughts on this? Good question. First of all, 
Let's compare the quotes. A Game of Thrones, Bran Three. There was nothing below him now but snow and cold and death. A frozen wasteland where jagged blue-white spires of ice waited to embrace him. They flew up at him like spears. He saw the bones of a thousand other dreamers impaled upon their points. He was desperately afraid. And? The winds of winter, the forsaken. Aaron Dampere looked. The mound of skulls was gone. Now it was metal underneath the crow's eye. A great, tall, twisted seat of razor-sharp iron. Barbs and blades and broken swords, all dripping blood. Impaled upon the longer spikes were the bodies of the gods. So the imagery is very similar, as you can see. That's the probably the most glaring similarity. But I'm not sure the deeper meaning is terribly similar. The gods impaled on the Iron Throne seems to be a direct tie to the priests tied to the prows of the different ships that Euron's about to go into battle with. I think that's the connection there. And in Bran's case, these are dreamers, uh, former green seers maybe, or maybe people who wandered too far in the dream world without a guide. It's not very clear, although it's interesting how early this concept is introduced. So I think there's some things in common, but I don't know that there's a true connection between the two things, but literarily, they're super similar. And it's maybe a pattern within dreams that George likes to, to go with. We've seen other sort of dream sequence type patterns. Most notably, I suppose, the most obvious one that we pointed out last episode was the similar wording that George used with Ned, Cersei, and Varamyr. He dreamed an old dream. She dreamed an old dream. That thing, uh, which had multiple sentences that were similar to each other. That might be a looser pairing of such things. Obviously, there isn't similar terminology here. But the impaled beings, that's the similar imagery. So I do think it's an interesting connection to draw, but I'm not sure there's more to it than that. I don't know that there's any deeper meaning between the two. Maybe it's something that we'll get more, uh, more on because in The Winds of Winter, I suspect we'll learn uh, far more about what Euron's even doing with these priests on prowls. Like, that's a big part of this. We don't know what that means. We don't know what he's doing exactly. There's a lot of good theories out there. Just like there's a lot of good theories on what Bran saw in his dream with regard to this, the uh, dreamers impaled on ice stalactites or stalagmite, whatever you want to call them. Now, there's also a little bit of... Perhaps connection between Euron and the Green Seers, and there's a theory out there that Euron was, was like a failed Green Seer, in other words, Blood Raven, or someone tried to speak to him in dreams, and then backed off once they realized what a piece of work he was. But it got him, at least, got his foot in the door mentally with some of these concepts, and might explain why he's just so out there with some of these ideas. It could just be shade of the evening, but <laughs> there might be more to it. Now, in that sense, the connection becomes even more compelling. If there is something to that, if Euron has been touched by Bloodraven or another Green Seer in his early life, or if he has some sort of latent skin-changing ability, or if he just has some sort of magic in his blood some ways, that makes this connection a lot more compelling and interesting, even though it's still kind of intangible. It's like where exactly these things overlap, where exactly they connect. It could be speaking to this whole magical sourcing concept a bit, where... These things have some similarities because they're all coming from the same magical 
thing, this magical force. Yeah, the force, like in Star Wars. You know? <laughs> Imagine that that's what's happening in The Song of Ice and Fire, that there's a force, except that people aren't aware of it. And they're all drawing on it without realizing it. And it has different effects depending on how they use it. It gives them dreams. gives them prophecies. It gives them, uh, you know, different sorts of magic in their blood. All the different things that exist magically in the world might be all tied to one thing, one magical source that no one can see or feel. Or it could be the gods. It could be, you know, there's a lot of possibilities there. In any case, this Euron brand stuff is the peak of the high magic aspects of this series. And that makes them a little difficult to predict or understand because the high magic aspects of A Song of Ice and Fire are just now truly coming into play. They've been there. They've been on the fringes. Of course, there's the, some things like the dragons, and we know the others are out there, and they're super powerful. But let's be honest, they haven't done that much yet. But we know they're going to. So I think all these things are going to become much more important. And as we move into the Winds of Winter, it'll become a lot clearer. And as so, we'll have a lot more fun. Well, maybe not a lot more fun. We'll have continue to have a lot of fun, more or less, a lot either way. So, until next time, this is Aziz signing off for all of History of Westeros, Ashea and everybody. And we'll see you all next time with the Golden Company episode. Valor Morgovist, everybody.